Welcome to the Archive Room podcast. Judith Lay here, once again opening the door to the Archive Room, Manx Radio's treasure chest of stories of island life from years gone by, told by the people who were there. So come on in, and let me take you for another gentle stroll down Manx memory lane. And for this specially extended one-hour festive special, I'm making another selection from the shelf marked Christmas. From Manx Radio. And a vintage station jingle welcomes you to another collection of stories and memories, all from the Manx Radio archive, and all in some way linked to Christmas. So let's get started. What makes Christmas special or memorable is going to be different for every single one of us. But as David Collister often discovered in conversation with country people, strong memories of happy times often come from very simple things. Doris Madrill was born in the early 1900s, the middle child with a younger brother and an older sister, and she lived all her life in Craigneesh, a very straightforward life that certainly didn't include going shopping for gifts at Christmas or any other time. I mean, we only went to Port St Mary for shoes, you know, because your mother made your clothes. You never got a, a bought unless my mother had a relation and she, she would come home from Liverpool and she'd always bring in perhaps a nice dress for my sister and myself. My mother was good to sew. And this Mrs Tumman, any girls that didn't go into service, and my mother didn't because she was a bit frail, mm. and um, she taught them how to sew. And then my mother said to me, you've got to learn to sew too. I never remember her sitting doing nothing or reading. She always had socks on a needle because my father was a skipper on a schooner and my great uncle was at sea and uh, they were always needing socks. What sort of games would you play? It's what I've told you. My father was a schooner skipper Mm. and a lot of his trade, if it wasn't to Liverpool or Runcon, it was up to to Thurso and then he would get a cargo there and go right down to Methyl down on the east coast of England I suppose Mm. it was so I said once to my mother how did you manage for Father Christmas of course I was gone in years 21 then well she said when your father was away he would look round for a spinning top and of course if there was one that had to be two you see, because my sister, and there'd be two dolls, and then there'd be skipping ropes. And of course, we were so well off because we'd skipping rope with bells on, you see. (laughs) But you see, I suppose he only went round the markets, and he would buy enough for our... Father Christmas. Yes. It was skipping ropes, then we had wooden tops that had a whip, and we had hoops. Well... That was only to put round uh, when you went down to the well for water. And that hoop was supposed to keep your clothes dry. But if you couldn't find your wooden hoop, you'd take this hoop and you'd... There was a crook going with it, you know. My goodness, we could do wonders with them, you know. Could you? Oh, yes. And some of the boys could do all sorts of things, you know. And I remember one of the boys, he took one of the wooden hoops and he put it round his waist and he was rigged. And he started doing the hula hoop, did he? Yes. <laughs> that was before we ever heard of it. Uh, oh, right. Of course, you before see. hula hoops were yes. invented, really. So but Later on, of course, boys used to take the wheels off old bikes and use them, oh, didn't yes. they? Oh, yes. Yes, oh, yes. And then, of course, the boys up at the letterbox, at the pillar box, as we call it, they had a patch and it was polished clean with their caps or their yeah. sleeves yeah. where they played marbles and yeah. you'd hear them shouting twosies cracks no holes over you know <laughs> and we little ones were watching see you know watching these marbles and there was yeah. and there was some of the boys had good glass beautiful glass marbles wherever they got them i don't know Doris Madrill of Craigneesh, recalling her childhood games and Christmas gifts in conversation with David Collister. But it seems that, judging by this letter in the Isle of Man Examiner in December 1938, not everyone wants to play nicely. Sir, I am not one who would put down a bit of good-natured snowballing, but 
When fun passes into a wicked desire to harm passers-by, it is time for someone to intercept. Last week, there was an almost fatal accident through indiscreet snowballing when a man in charge of a pair of horses was well-nigh killed by it. I regret that the youth of Douglas has not learned the lesson which this incident teaches. The other night, they were on our promenade in dozens, some sliding on the concrete while others gathered large heaps of snow and stones on the roadside, with which they belaboured pedestrians, entirely regardless of the consequences. As I myself passed through this ordeal, I write most feelingly. And, of course, there wasn't a policeman to be seen along the whole promenade. Keith Tier read that letter, published in the Isle of Man Examiner in December 1938. For many years, John Kenyuk presented the popular farming programme that he described as items of interest from the Manx countryside in general and from farming in particular. And he often talked with older people, sharing their memories of living and working in the countryside. On the Peel to Glen May Road, just outside Patrick Village, is the entrance to Shinvala, the farm that once was home to Pete and Sarah Kelly and their four daughters. John went to visit one of those daughters, Mrs Nancy Mills, following the publication of A Country Girl, the book Nancy wrote about her life in the country. And it was whilst they were chatting that John discovered Nancy's best Christmas memories weren't actually anything to do with presents. Now, you, you mentioned in your book as well that uh, Christmas time was a very special time for you. Yes. What was so special about that for you then in, in your life at Chenvala? The parties. All the farms used to have parties and we would have a party and we'd go to their parties. Mother and father used to go to Balakalm to Christians. Christians lived there then and they used to have a party. Remember my mother saying she got so tired going round and these that once she said once she went this went to Christians and she started eating eating off Ella her plate <laughs> because she instead of her own. Oh and she was very embarrassed because she said she was so tired. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Can you think of any other places that you went to Christmas parties yes, then? Yes, we used to go to uh, Quail's Ballalise with John, Quail and Elsie, and they used to come to ours. We used to go to Ballacallan at Dalby. Then there was a Mrs Ratliff lived there, and she used to let her house for us, the young people, to have a party, and we'd all go there. As Willie Quirks used to be an MHK, yes, yes. his sister Annie had an old car. And we'd all squash into this car. <laughs> and once it came down, it was Peel Hill, and one of the wheels came off. <laughs> but all this part, it was all the young people used to go. Willie Quirk used to play a cornet or something. And we'd play soft thing game, like Kiss in the Ring. Right. And Dolb used to have social there. And we'd have all these soft games and games. Party girl Nancy Mills sharing her best Christmas memories. This next part of the same conversation isn't really to do with Christmas, but I think you'll enjoy listening to John being taken completely by surprise by Nancy's story of the doctor and the monkey. It all started so well, chatting about the milk produced on the farm being sold via the family-run Milk Round in Peel. You had a Milk Round in Peel, didn't yes. you? Yes. And your Uncle Bobby, I think you said, yes. went he, on the, on the yes. Milk Round. He was very popular mm. in Peel because he used to get on well with all the lady customers. <laughs> <laughs> he was a nice man, though, wasn't he? I remember him. Yes, he was all full of fun. He was. And I remember he used to tell awful tales. There was a Dr Longson in Peel. Peel. By the bus station he had this thing and he used to have a pet monkey. <laughs> And everywhere he went, he took this pet monkey with him in the, in the car. One day, my Uncle Bobby said he went in to give him the milk. He used to go walk right in through the door into the back and put the milk into the jug, you know. And as he was going past the coal oven, the door was open and he shut it as he was going past. <laughs> and apparently, this, the monkey was in the oven. <laughs> <laughs> and the doctor's wife said, what have you done with my monkey, you know? <laughs> and another, this monkey used to come round with him when he came to the farm with medicine, a bottle of medicine. You got a tonic or something. And once he came when I wasn't well, he'd give me medicine. But I never got the medicine because the monkey drunk it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> 
<laughs> remember that. <laughs> Right. Well, what I was going to ask you before you got on to the monkey. Well, my deepest admiration to you, John Kenyuk. I don't know how you managed to carry on a sensible interview after that story. And that's the beauty of talking to people. You never quite know what you're going to hear. A few years ago, well-known Manx Radio celebrity Louise Quirk made a welcome reappearance at the station to record some Christmas-themed interviews over tea and cakes in a laxy tea room. One of Louise's guests was the legendary entertainer Dot Tilbury, and her conversation was full of surprises of a different kind. I'd no idea that she'd been caught up in the swinging 60s, and I was really touched to hear that while she loved performing, she'd no real sense of her own power to entertain and to amuse. I was born and brought up in Crosby. My dad went to, uh, from the Isle of Man to World War II, and um, he met my mum, who was from Newcastle, and he brought her back to the Isle of Man, and they had a local government board house, um, which were built at Crosby, Bromont Grove, and we were in number three, but of course we, I wasn't born then. And then um, my sister was first, then me, then my brother Peter, and Christmas times were very happy times because we didn't have lots of toys or anything like they've got now, but we never felt deprived or anything, you know, we we always sort of felt, we, we used to get the tangerine with the silver paper on yes. and uh, the usual things. But um, Christmas Day, we'd get up and there'd be a gift for us and a pillowcase with bits in. And then in the afternoon, we used to go down to my Auntie Doze, who lived down um, in a little bungalow in the village. And she used to say, about an hour after we'd arrived, that she'd forgotten to get the milk and she'd go out of the house and we took no notice, we just thought she'd forgotten to get the milk. And about a quarter of an hour later, there'd be a knock on the window and Father Christmas would be at the window. And we go, oh, it's Father Christmas. My Nana Kelly was there and Uncle Tom and, and my cousins and my Uncle Eddie and Auntie Mary from Douglas and their boys and girls and a real scotch. I was only a little bungalow, but we all squeezed in and Father Christmas came in to give out the presents. And um, this went on for years and we just thought, you know, it's just like you'd died and gone to heaven. You know, we didn't know who it was. And then one year I looked and I thought, Auntie Doe, that's a blouse. And she had like a Rupert Bear blouse on. I can still see it. It was yellow with black check. And I thought, Auntie Doe had a blouse on like that. I wonder if Father Christmas is Auntie Doe. And I was getting a bit older and I think I just sort of sussed it out that it was Auntie Doe that was Father Christmas. Um, but I didn't dare say anything in case I didn't get any presents. Um, so that, you know, great memories. My cousin Mary, who lives in Canada now, she had a piano. So a piano was like, uh, I gravitated towards this piano and I pleaded with my mum that I wanted to go to piano lessons and eventually I did to Mrs Stanley Kelly in the village and that's Brian Kelly, the vicar's mother. And she taught me and I did grades and everything and I got this piano from, well, my dad got piano from somewhere and it had four notes missing, you know, the usual yes. thing and um, wasn't <laughs> it probably Jimmy? in tune. I think Jimmy yeah. Davidson used to come out and try and make it sort of better. But... Um, you know, I got by and then my friend Josephine Ellis used to go as well and we got three grades and we were, we were catching Mrs Kelly up so we had to go into Douglas and I used to go to Eleanor Sherman. We used to go in the Guild and everything and, but then we both gave up then. You know, you got to 15 when you were doing your GCEs and, and I gave up. And I still go to piano lessons actually. I go to Judy Cross but I don't okay. practice. But I just think I make it a discipline that I go there so that I've got to think a little bit. And I mean, I, ideal would have been like, you know, Wendy McDowell, Kath Blackburn, mm. Kelly Ratcliffe, Gareth Moore. You know, they can all just sit there. They can eat a sandwich, talk and play the concerto <laughs> with the, you know, their eyes closed. And I just think how wonderful would it be to be like I've watched David Holland in the pit, yes, David, you know, in the pantomimes. He'd be eating sandwiches. You know, it's just such a huge talent. Dot Tilbury, so appreciative of the talent of others. There in particular, the talent of pianists. 
But what about her own talent? She might have been unaware of her own power to entertain, but at an early age, she discovered how much she enjoyed absolutely any chance to perform. They had a youth club in Crosby, and Johnny Gallen, if you yes, remember Johnny Gallen, yes. he used to put on a youth club uh, concert every year, and that was like the highlight of my year. And the Little Methodist Hall, people would be sitting in the windows and everything, because it was such a big night. And they had electric guitars, and Johnny played the piano like a skiffle group, and I think Stewie Clegg was on the double bass, you know, the big box, yes. and um, Ernie Lease. Um, from yes. Peel, he played an electric guitar and he used to go down on his knees yeah. like Elvis, you know, yeah. and I just thought that was the most wonderful thing in the world. And then they used to do like a, a maybe a pantomime or something and um, I couldn't wait to be in the youth club so I could go in the pantomime and I think I got, the first part I got was a page boy where I just had to stand there with oh, a crowd. How disappointing. No. I was thrilled. You I was on the, the stage. Pantomime. I was on the stage. <laughs> used to do a lot of Steadfords and I thought I had a Bucks Road certificate and I've got small certificates from when I was a kid because every week I went with the Ellis family from Balagheri and we just used to go in the Dormobile and we used to enter everything and come away with cups and certificates and everything so it's always been there but I never thought about it before. Well, I mean, we didn't have, like now, you can go to all these drama schools, dance schools. I mean, the, the you know, so many things that kids can attend, you know. Then you just picked a song out of the hymn book or something. Or my Auntie Doe Crea did Manx plays, and she used to give me little snippets of Manx poems to say at the Estedfords, and I used to love doing the Manx dialect. And then... So that's sort of, it's, it's always been there, but I've never sort of took it, never thought about it or never thought that, uh, you know, that just I could be funny. It's just sort of developed, I, you know. And just how it developed is another fascinating story that we'll come back to in a few moments. But let's find out now what happened when Dot Tilbury left school. When I left school... I went to work in London and um, I was going to go to art college and then I decided not to go to art college and I just went down to London in the swinging 60s just to, you know, because I thought that's the place to go. And I got a job in Harrods Toy Department and uh, I was there sort of about three weeks and um, I worked in the Toy Inquiry office and there was like about 40 people in a big room and it was all very prim and proper, and I was Miss Kelly. And uh, anyway, this woman phoned up one day and she said, um, I want to speak to the girl with a funny accent. <laughs> so I put my hand over the phone and I said, she wants to speak to the girl with a funny accent. And they all went, that's you. And I sort of never thought about an accent, but I was actually told in Harrods by one of the assistant managers, he said, you're never going to get on in Harrods because you don't talk right. And that was that was like the 60s, but now you hear the BBC, it's yeah. all very regional. But then I couldn't get over how they used to say Bok for a book. And, you know, and I said, they said, what did you say? I said, a book. And they said, what's a book? And I said, something you read? No, it's Bok, Bok. <laughs> and uh, um, so that was when I was conscious that I sort of had an accent. The toy department at Christmas was where all the people who were on the telly went on a Saturday afternoon. And I can remember I served Scylla Black and Sid James, Spike Milligan, wow. you know, all these names. The Queen used to come in early in the morning. They used to close the shop for the Queen Please, to come yes. round. I was sort of in charge of the toy inquiry office eventually. I came back from lunch one day and this lady was standing there and I thought, oh, I recognise that lady. And she was talking to a very old, not very old, but she seemed old to me, Miss Dyer. She was in charge of stocking filler department and uh, this lady had brought back a toy and she'd said to her, who do you think you are bringing this toy back at this time? It's March now and have you got your receipt? And it was the Duchess of Kent. And I said to, oh, I said to Miss Dye, I said, it's all right, I'll deal with this now. And you, you know, you well went and got the buyer and he sort of sorted her out. But you saw it was just a great atmosphere. 
it was expanded for Christmas, of course. At Christmas time, there was always a theme, and this year, this particular year, it was the Mad Hatter's Tea Party, and they had a Mad Hatter in the department that was about eight foot tall, and his arms were outspread, and on the arms were all little Mad Hatters, right? And the whole place was, all the windows were Mad Hatters, and everything was themed, and then, this man came in one day and he wanted to know if he could buy the Mad Hatter. And anyway, I went and got the buyer and they negotiated price. And the Mad Hatter was sent to this gentleman's house. And anyway, he phoned up and he complained because they hadn't put all the little, little Mad Hatters. Hatters. He said, <laughs> I bought the whole thing. So they had to send all the little Mad Hatters to them. And then after Christmas, where the, the expansion had taken place was the fashion show. They used to do a spring and autumn collection and the fashion shows were just amazing, you know. The, the ladies who lunch would be there and these top models and there would be music. I mean, it was so cutting edge. And I used to sit and watch the fashion show, you know, in my coffee breaks. I used to go in just to watch the fashion show. So, how did Dot Tilbury move from the world of celebrity shoppers and exclusive fashion shows to become a much-loved local entertainer? It all started when I came back from London. I was there about five years and, uh, you know, it, it's always difficult coming back into the island, I, I think, because you don't want to come back and be the big I am. So I thought, well, you know, what shall I do? And I thought, well, I'll go to the Braid of Steadford and try and get the vibes from the Braid of Steadford. Anyway, I thought, I'll learn a poem, and I got one of my Auntie Doe's poems out. And um, I think it was the Peel Tay fight, actually. And um, I, st I sort of learnt it, but it was at the time when you had to lie in the bed to put your jeans on, because oh, yes. they were so oh, tight. Yes. And um, I had my words down my jeans, and I forgot the words, and I thought, oh, no. And Ian Qualtra was the adjudicator. And I pulled out the words and they sort of ripped as I was pulling them out of my trousers. And in the remarks after, he got up and he said, then we've got Miss Kelly up on the stage. He said, and she tried to pull the words out of her knickers and, <laughs> and she made a right rock of it. So at that point, I thought, you know, because that got a laugh with Ian. And I didn't know Ian from Adam. And then I thought, well, if I make poems up, then I can just read them so I won't have to learn them. And that was bizarre thinking behind that. And that's when I started to write poems about topical things that were going on and, and they seemed to go down well. And then the rest is sort of history. But Ian, you know, I got to know Ian very well. And I went down to his house one day and he showed me, he had a very old um, DVD of the ventriloquist act that he used to do oh, with Walter yes. Collister. Walter was a teacher at Castle Russian and Walter was a ventriloquist and Ian was the ventriloquist dummy and he showed me and he never said a word and he said do you reckon you can do that and I said what the ventriloquist and he said yeah I said I'll give it a go and I mean that was such an iconic you know twosome and, you know, it was never the same twice. And Ian would forget his words and we'd be rolling around the stage. And, you know, I used to have to be sort of telling them the word, lines and everything. But it was just hilarious. And I, I can still remember Wendy McDowell in the Gaiety Theatre. I could hear her laugh when we did it at the Gaiety. <laughs> and I could hear her just laughing her head off because he just was so funny. I think he could have made it professional. He did want to. He told me once in a sort of a weak moment, he said, I might like to have done this professionally. But of course, he said with the family business, he said he couldn't do it. But I think he, you know, he was a real touch of the Spike Milligans or the Tommy Coopers. You know, yes. he had a touch of that about him. And you just never knew what he was going to do on the stage next. Our next little bit of nostalgia pays tribute to two people who, through their teaching skills, have enabled countless singers and public speakers to achieve their full potential. 
and that might not mean taking part in any competitions. To experience the joy of singing or to feel confident when giving a vote of thanks is just as valuable as winning a class in the Manx Music Festival. It would be impossible to work out how many people Mrs Pat Corrin has assisted to become confident speakers or how many people Mrs Eleanor Shimon has filled with the love of music. Listen now as Mrs Pat Corrin recites from the works of Manx poet Kathleen Farragher. And that's followed by the Aig Threshlin Children's Choir, founded by Mrs Eleanor Shimon and directed by her for over 25 years. No light inside the little church, save that on crib and laden tree, where shadows hover warm and dark with air of deep expectancy. Then, through the ancient oaken door, the guides and brownies wend their way on quiet feet. And from each hand a candle sheds its softened ray. How reverently they take their place within God's house. And as they sing, their sweet young voices tell again the story of the babe, the king. They bring before our eyes the star, the shepherds resting in the field above the hills of Bethlehem, where God's great purpose was revealed. They sing the message from their hearts, their youthful faces all aglow with earnestness and joy and love. God grant, wherever they may go, that faith will guide them through the years, unfaltering, steadfast, shining bright, as when they sang and knelt and prayed in Dune's small church by candlelight. Our next stop is the annual Christmas poultry sale at the Mart at St John's. And in a moment, we'll hear again from John Kenyuk as he sets the scene for the December 1998 sale and talks with auctioneer Noel Kringle. Each year at this time of the year, just before Christmas, Central Mart at St John's organise their annual Christmas poultry sale. It's quite a rare event because the usual people who come to the Mart have to take a back seat 
as others from the community come to buy their Christmas dinner. This sale has developed into something quite special, really, because once upon a time, the Christmas poultry sale would have consisted of people bringing mostly live poultry to the mart to sell. But nowadays, many, many sellers bring oven-ready poultry, and this finds a very, very ready trade. And crowds of people flocked into St John's Mart last Friday afternoon looking for their Christmas dinner. And there was plenty on offer of all varieties. All the species of poultry were there, all very well dressed, very well presented, and it all met a ready trade. There was quite a festive atmosphere. There were mince pies available and one of the officers on the mart yard, coffee was being served and the whole afternoon started when Noel Kringle, who was on the rostrum doing the auctioneering, actually asked all the people having distributed the carol sheets to join in and sing several carols. And we join the mart now as that carol singing was just beginning. Well, that was uh, the cattle singing at St John's Mart uh, last Friday when we all gathered there on a very wet afternoon when the annual poultry sale took place. That singing was actually conducted before the poultry sale. And all has gone much quieter here now. Noel, you've come into the office, down at the rostrum, you've finished outside. It was a long mart, wasn't it? Um, yes, quite quite a lengthy mart, John, but uh, interesting mart, isn't it, when you've got the Christmas poultry? I mean, it's something different to, to the normal cattle and sheep job. It's... Uh, I think the general public enjoy it. Yeah, and I think it, it, there was a different clientele in, wasn't there? Oh, yes, definitely get different people. And yeah. the interesting thing is that the same people are now beginning to come back year after year to buy their, their Christmas dinner, and, and, and that's the, a good sign. And the place was absolutely packed out. The regulars didn't get to the ringside, uh, did, no, did they? No, the regulars <laughs> don't get right to the ring at all. Uh, not, un, not until the first few birds are bought, and then they, they begin to... Make a move, as it were. <laughs> and yeah. I must say that the cattle singer and the mince pies have added to the atmosphere, haven't they? Oh, it's a good atmosphere. Mm. Cattle, the cattle went well. I thought they did particularly they did. well this year. <laughs> and the nice thing is, I was talking to one gentleman last night, and uh, he was under instructions to come down to sing. Uh, not not from me, but the, he'd been in, under instructions that they had to go to the mart because he enjoyed the carols. That's nice. Do you think um, bringing it to the Friday this year was was a, was a good idea? Has it worked? Do you think? Um, I don't think it makes a lot of difference, John. Uh, the, the reason we actually brought it to the Friday was because Christmas Day is on a Friday, mm. and if we'd have had it on the Wednesday as normal, 
the interval between selling the poultry and Christmas Day is too long. So we've just moved it to fit in with the Christmas reading. Yeah, and it's worked very, very well. It's, it's worked been, well. been a good yes. afternoon. Yes. Now, before you go, Noel, um, we're coming up to Christmas, and the week after Christmas we're re-entering the last year of this of this present millennium, which is mm. quite remarkable. Mm. Um, and as Speaker of the House of Keys, auctioneer here, farmer at home, you, you must be looking forward. But have you, what, what resolution are you going to have for, for 1999? Oh, it's dead easy, John. I'm going to get to Peel in the parish walk in under seven and a half hours. Good. Well, that's quietened you, didn't it? It did, it did quiet me. But I'm going. Your wife has been listening. Business is still going on in the market, obviously. And I'm going to ask Mary now what her New Year resolution is. Mary, have you got a New Year's resolution? No, I haven't got a resolution. Then I'm never disappointed if I break it. <laughs> Got to follow him with a stick to make sure he gets there. Oh, dear John, no, there you are. Anyway, have an ask Christmas. OK, thanks, all was best. Well, after our visit to the Mart, uh, I went along the road to my friend and colleague, Hubert and Doreen Kameen at Bola Crane, and you can probably tell by the noise in the background that we're at a very busy crossroads here at Bola Crane. But the farmyard at Bollacrane this time of the year is transformed into something of a wonderland. Hubert, maybe if I can come to you first, do you think a farmyard lends itself to a decorating like this for Christmas? Well, I think so. This is one of the reasons we do it. I mean, going back years ago to the times of the Bible, it was about animals in stables and things like that, which is one of the reasons why we tried to recreate something similar. Now, you've gone to an awful lot of trouble here. Does it, does it take you long to put all these lights up and all the figures? I'm getting better at it, <laughs> but I'm not an electrician like yourself, we're self-taught, and it seems to work. I'm a little kid at heart when it comes to this time of the year, and I get an awful lot of pleasure, both Doreen and myself, watching the little ones coming here and looking at the different things. The bit I like best still is still the nativity scene, but we add other bits to it, which are perhaps a little bit more commercialised items, but... Uh, it's just done for the pleasure of the children. A lot of people come now, they're most welcome to come in and have a look round because it makes the effort all that more worthwhile. We especially like to see the children coming. And, and where, do you, where do you find all the figures? You've got an awful lot of figures up here in several tableaux. Where, where do you find the figures for this? Do you, do you find them on the island? We have always got ours from across garden centres and that. And as a result of that, other garden centres have now started to stock them on the island. Mm. And I like travelling around the island, seeing these figures up at different people's houses. Now, you, you seem to have very successfully uh, kept the stock off the yard, all the stock around the back of the farmyard, so it leaves this part free. And, and that makes this very safe and very conducive to sort of something like you're doing now, doesn't it? Yes, and we're very fortunate. We're in a position here, like at the crossroads, where uh, unlike lot, most farms up a lane, the farm lends itself for people to be able to see it. Any donations anybody gives, we're doing for the Manx Blind Welfare because I think if you were to come in onto the yard here and look for a few minutes and then stop and close your eyes, that is what people who cannot see see. Yes. And it makes you realise mm. when you open them again how fortunate we are to be able to mm. see. Mm. So if we can do something to help those who are not as fortunate as uh, ourselves, that's what it's all about. Now, when they come in onto the farmyard, you've got a, a, an innovation this year in a, in a cattle trailer here. Well, I think you should ask Doreen about that lot, because that's all her part. Right, well, I've caught up with Doreen now, and actually we've moved into the porch. The wind was just starting to blow us about a bit out on the yard. But, Doreen, the, the, the new part that you've added to this, just describe it for us. Um, well, we've used the horse box, the original horse box, and we've put uh, a lot of decorating ivy and bracken round about the sides of it just to make it fancy. And in the centre, uh, we have snow, the imitation snow, and we have three Bambis, one the Daddy Bambi and the Mummy Bambi and the Baby Bambi, and they're all breathing, and you'd swear they were alive. And, of course, the kiddies all love to touch these, but we thought perhaps they'd better not, better not touch them, you know, with electric... And we've put a little notice on the front saying, please do not touch Bambi, he's fast asleep. Shh. <laughs> so this works. They stand back. It really is very realistic, isn't it? You really would think they were just lying there breathing. Yes, yeah, very, very good. Even the dogs think they're alive. We've got to watch, you know, in case they get into them. <laughs> 
So yes. what's, what's your part in it all then, Doreen? Uh, My part in it, uh, I just go around at nights and watch to see what's gone off and give you a bit of shout and he's got to get into the electrics then. I've got a lovely story to tell you about the, the nativity. Have you been down there to I just see watched that? the nativity. Yes. A, a lady in the post office stopped me yesterday and she said she was putting her little girl to bed and she said, I've got to tell you this story. She said, Mummy... Was Jesus born at Bethlehem or was he born at Palacone Farm? <laughs> <laughs> that is lovely, isn't it? It's lovely, yes. And that must make it yeah. all worthwhile oh, for you. Oh, it does, yes. Yeah. And people write down in the books and we enjoy reading their comments. Belinda, uh, my eldest daughter, she's been drawing the murals, yep. so they attract a lot of attention too, and the yeah. Teletubbies. Yes, they all add to the magic. Well, you're to be congratulated and thanked, Doreen, because uh, I think yourself and you provide something here that, that I think we've come to look for now at Balacrae each year as Christmas comes round it's become something of a tradition I hope you get as much pleasure out of putting it up as we do at looking at it we do, I'm sure we do get a lot of pleasure from it Hubert and Doreen Kameen talking with John Kenyuk on the yard at Ballacrane and it seems appropriate that we should end this section of the programme by returning John to his own farm where David Collister has called to see him December in the countryside at Ballawillen in German, and I've come down to see John Kenyuk today on the farm. The cows sound uh, very happy out there, John. Well, they're probably not very happy, David. They're, they're probably waiting to be fed, and uh, that's the noise they make at this time of day. They know the time of the day probably better than we do. So that's why they were shouting as I came down the yard, is it? If you were down the yard at them, they would have expected you would have had a bucket with you ready to feed them, I think. <laughs> well, December in the countryside for the farmer means you can put your feet up and take a rest, is it? Well, you, you can take a rest from certain jobs, you can take a rest from the field work. Um, what, what isn't done on the field by December um, in, in relation to autumn work just has to wait now until the springtime, until it dries up again. And our work now in December and the ensuing months will be very much concerned with livestock and their welfare. From the day you buy your first cow, you're utterly committed to it twice a day and some people now three times a day milking. Mm. But it's a job that uh, we went into with our eyes open. We know full well what it means. It's a way of life. You get used to it. Christmas Day or any other day, milking first thing in the morning and again late afternoon is just part of the way of life. We like to think that a good steady early start all through the year, and that's day in, day out, all through the year, mm. round about 7 o'clock is not a bad start. Well, the sheep will be, where will they be? Are they undercover? Are they indoors? Are they outside? No, we've just started to feed the sheep. They're outside yet. We'll bring them in for lambing, well, prior to lambing, in late pregnancy. We'll bring them indoors, which will give us another chore, of course. The sheep doesn't particularly like it either. She's an outdoor animal. And you have to be very, very careful when you house sheep because it's not their natural environment but it makes for easier shepherding. What about Christmas Day itself, then? I mean, that's, that becomes a working day for you as well, is it? We only leave the essentials to be done on Christmas Day, and that is what, what the cows and the cattle and the sheep need. Um, we try to prepare as much as ever we can prior to Christmas Day. I've always been a great believer that everybody, as far as possible, should be as close to home as possible, and... Uh, We've always tried to ensure that those who work with us uh, have the day off at Christmas Day so that they can be home with their families. And we actually live here, so we are home, and we undertake to do all the work ourselves. It does make it quite busy for us, but we can cope. Um, we can usually get the yard work finished, get to chapel for about half past nine on Christmas morning, back from the service with the family then till afternoon milking. As you walk out and, and look at the cattle in the stalls, there's a picture of Christmas there for you. I mean, is there a special feeling uh, at Christmas on a farm, would you say? Oh, yes. I think in, in spite of the fact that we may complain uh, about having to work over the Christmas holidays when everybody's enjoying a few days off, I've come to realise over the past few years that, uh, yes, we, we are privileged in a way to be very, very closely related to the Christmas story. And although farms have modernised a great deal in, in recent times, I would think on most farms there's still a stable, there's still the manger somewhere there. And I think he would be a very hard farmer indeed who came in at bedtime on Christmas Eve having been round the stock for the last time, not to have felt something a bit special about that particular evening. And I wish you now the joy and the peace of the season.
Music there from Kurjin Kujak under the direction of Annie Kizak. And now for something a little different. If the weather is in any way reasonable on Christmas or Boxing Day, a good walk often goes down well. But many of us would love a 16-mile hike over the island's hills, but, well, we're not quite fit enough. And that was the great appeal of Rambling with Howard Hampton here on Manx Radio many years ago. Howard would invite listeners to follow on an ordnance survey map as he described a walk, a practical guide if you did actually want to go for a good hike, but just listening to Howard and following the route on a map would give you a better understanding of the geography and a little of the history of the island. But in this, the first talk at the start of a new series of rambles, Howard Hampton offers some good advice for all walkers. Well, now, for the benefit of those who want to start rambling, I feel that there are several points they should know about in order to make their outings enjoyable and really worthwhile. And we'll start with clothing. Now, for your feet, naturally you need to be well shod. And ladies, please, no platform soles and high heels. You're going to get into trouble. Just a pair of good stout shoes or boots for preference. I always wore boots myself with firm rubber soles and leather laces. They don't break so easily. Now, socks. I always wore two pairs of woolen socks. Woolen, mark you, not nylon. Wool absorbs the perspiration, whereas nylon simply goes hard. I used to wear two pairs of socks. The inner pair were pulled up, more or less, up to the knees, and the outer pair, I used to roll them down over the tops of my boots, And that used to stop little stones and heather or fern fronds from getting down inside the boots and getting behind the heels. Now, as regards your clothing, well, naturally, you need enough to keep yourself warm and dry, especially if you're going to walk during the winter. And make no mistake about it, winter walks can be most interesting. Now, I always wore a vest next to the body because that, again, absorbs perspiration. After that, well, it's it's up to yourself, you know, a shirt, pullover, cardigan, anorak, or what have you. But you do want a a lightweight Macintosh or a gas cape. And incidentally, I also suggest a waterproof hood. It's better than having the rain running down the back of your neck. Now, you'll also want a rucksack to carry things with you. And I don't suggest that you go off spending pounds on one of these Swedish framed rucksacks. You don't want anything like that. Just a small rucksack or an ex-army valise. But I would suggest that you make sure it's got two shoulder straps so that it sits comfortably between your shoulders. Don't get one of those things that hangs on one shoulder. They get very uncomfortable. They wobble about all over the place. They sling around your neck and they can easily put you off your balance. Now, you may say, what do I want to carry? Well, first of all, of course, you'll want some sandwiches and you'll also want a flask of tea or coffee because you'll want a hot drink up on the tops, believe you me. I suggest you get a linen ordnance map. It's a little bit expensive to start with, but it's worth it. It doesn't tear. It's got contour lines on, it's got names, and that's how you'll learn all about the island. I suggest also a little compass. Now, you might never need it, But believe me, you can get lost very easily up on the hills in the mist. I used to know the hills and the sheep tracks, but still I've been lost a couple of times up there. You know, the mist comes down suddenly and you haven't a clue where you are. When walking alone, and I often walked alone, I always took my old scout whistle with me. You know, it's so easy that you could jump off a hedge, not a high one, about three feet high, and you could land awkwardly on a stone that was covered with grass and you didn't see it, and crack, that's your ankle gone. Let's hope it never happens, but if it did, well, you could make yourself as comfortable as possible and keep blasting on the whistle. I expect you'd blast more than the whistle, but still, if you keep blowing, someone will hear you. Three longs, three shorts, three longs, that's the message and somebody will get it and come and look for you. Now, you're going to get blisters. I've had hundreds of blisters in my 50 years of rambling. There's two schools of thought on blisters. To burst or not to burst, that is the question, as Will Shakespeare would have said. Speaking personally, I've burst every blister I've ever had. So I always carried some plasters and a needle. I used to keep them in a little tin box. 
The needle was in a piece of lint, keep it clean, and whenever I got a blister, I'd burst it, squeeze the water out, slap on a plaster, and I'd walk for miles after that. I always used to also carry a walking stick, use the walking stick, one with a crook on, and you'll be amazed the number of times that crook can help you to climb over a hedge or a stone wall. You can hook it on a convenient branch that's above you, and you can pull yourself up on it. I remember one time I even pulled a sheep out of a bog up on Sartville. I got the crook round its horn and I yanked and yanked. I bet it had a headache, but I saved its life, I reckon. Now, if you've got a dog which answers on the first command, by all means take it with you. But if it won't behave you, or it doesn't come to heal immediately, leave it at home, or you're going to get it shot. Now, I seem to have talked an awful lot today, but I consider what I've said will contribute to make your rambles most enjoyable and something to look back on, as I do, with happy memories. So, so long for now, yes, sir. And with that famous sign-off from Howard Hampton, I'm afraid it's time to close the archive room door on our Christmas memories. My next visit to the archive room will be on Thursday, January the 5th when Mona Douglas will share stories, customs and legends about old Christmas Day on the 6th of January. I do hope you can join me for that. But if you can't, don't forget that all episodes of the Archive Room are available as podcasts. And today's sign-off? Well, I think it just has to be another Vintage Station greeting. This is Judith saying thank you for listening. I wish you a very good evening and a very happy Christmas. Nolik Gennel as Blaine Vinor. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. From Manx Radio.